Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. It is born in the fury of the most violent storms on Earth. It has traveled thousands of miles, building in strength and size. And here, in a remote corner of the planet, some men will not run from its fury. They will ride it. You're not ready for it. I'm ready. So when the wave breaks here, don't be there. Or you're gonna get drilled. He's a modern savage. If I say it's safe to surf this beach, Captain, it's safe to surf this beach! What's he searching for? The ride. The ultimate ride. What's up? The only thing surfers have in common with the rest of America is they're unemployed and love crystal meth. Welcome back to Surf Center. This is episode number 22. I'm Chad White along with Damian Farinfort from Free Radicals, and we have a pretty awesome episode again stacked up for you today. Um, we've got Dr. Andy Walsh, who most of you probably know as you know the Red Bull athlete um, performance coach. I guess that's probably the really not the right title for him, but he's the guy that got people mentally and physically prepared to jump out of space capsules and do 100-foot step-up jumps in Las Vegas and you know, surf their best and skate their best and, and like that, you know. When I was, when I first landed in the States and the, it was the first time I met Andy, um, I was, me and Jordy were living together and we moved over and I was like riding his coattails and we got to go up to Rincon for this like little Red Bull camp with Andy and, uh, Andy and Andy and, and Kingy, um, Andrew King. Yeah. And they were teaching us about, we kind of served Rincon all day and then they were teaching us about like lactic acid in the body. And although, like, you know, as Andy mentions in this podcast, that was, like, a very common thing and known amongst the uh, the physic, the training or the athletic world, like, right. outside of surfing, was still very new in surfing, right? And I remember them taking us through these different, these different exercises after a surf, how to kind of get the lactic acid going through your body. Now, stuff that I've used ever since my whole life, like, if there's going to be two or three or five days of pumping waves, making sure I'm doing a light workout to release the lactic acid. Yeah. Um, so, it's still stuff that I do today. Obviously, he's... Know, taking it to the point where people are jumping out of space it's like right. another level and he yeah. talks a bit about there in this episode and dealing with like nasa and all these different people that make that thing come to life yeah i think that you know we we always i always think about um everybody's career you know that you have this sort of progression in your career where i think that that you know people sort of plateau and they, they think they know every single thing there is to know and andy's one of the opposite kind of person the more he ends up learning the more he wants to learn and the more he's been able to unpack and unlock all these different things that, with regard to human potential. I remember having this conversation with him that, you know, there's only so much that your that, that your physical being and your and your nutrition and your and your headspace can do um, in order to prepare you to, to to perform at the highest levels, whether you're an athlete or whether you're, you know, a, a creative person or but he said that the one thing that that they've really been trying to unlock and he created a whole platform around this is the difference that creativity makes in being able to achieve those goals. It doesn't matter if you're a creative person. It just matters that the way that you see your the way that you solve problems and the way that you see things in in, in you know through your own lens is really how uh, is really the way to, to the highest possible performance. And that's something that nobody really had been thinking until I think yeah. he got into that space. And if you're a core surfer, you don't have to look much further than like the Kelly Slaters, the Geordies, the Danes, you know, and, they, and even like Mikey to a degree, the different approach to riding waves. Yeah. It's like truly creative and it's kind of thinking outside of the box. And it's it's interesting because you, you really can see that, you know, 
exactly what you said that you know when Kelly's surfing, it's Kelly. Like just yeah. the, the lines he draws, and 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 same with Jordy, all these guys. And it really does have to do with the way that they dissect the 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 you know the problem of riding waves, right? Um, and so, anyways, so so Andy will tell us more about that. One of the really interesting things is that you know he was he was saying that there's a there's a, the difference between success and failure also comes down to how comfortable you are when things go wrong. And so what he tries to do is put people in these situations where, uh, and really where they can experience real danger without there being any real danger. And he says that, you know, getting people used to that feeling um, and that trigger and then being able to respond in, in the right way to it is is actually, you know, again, one of the things that's unlocking the, the sort of the outer limits of human potential. Well, I listened to this amazing TED talk the other day and they're talking about stress, right? And the difference of people dying young from stress and old from stress. And what they found, that they, they did like, I think, 10,000 people. And it was a huge study of it, like 10, 15, 20 years. And what they found was that the difference between the people that like died from stress and it like aged them, physically aged them at like a exponential rate. Yeah. Was, and the difference between the people that had high stress but didn't die from it or ages badly was just the awareness of it. Like, going, okay, I'm stressed right now. And like understanding that it's the body's going through something and how to react accordingly versus the other people being debilitated by the stress or trying to not acknowledge it and just put it out of their mind. Right. You're, you're instead of processing the adrenaline, you're like swallowing the adrenaline, right? So that's what's it, when right? you have anxiety, it's just an overload of adrenaline. And and what you need to be able to do is process that in a way to, to you know, whether it's physical or whether it's, but usually it's a physical thing. And so there's, it is really interesting that the, that, People that are highly stressed individuals actually do can perform really well and have amazingly healthy lifestyles as long as they process that. So, um, and, and again, I think Andy speaks a lot to that. I mean, I don't know if he speaks directly to that, but he speaks about you know things that relate to that. Um, the other things in the news this as of right now are what do you well, think? Uh, there hasn't been too much on like the surf news front, other than probably Surf One Hundred and the WSLs. French rendezvous. Um, I think again, we we don't have to uh, argue on this one. I don't, I don't think anybody would argue on this one. Just how awesome Surf One Hundred was, and just how bad the French rendezvous was. And and I and I just like don't want to keep bagging on the WSL because no. I because yeah, I do miss the events. But I watched it and I wanted to like it. And but I just like guys, here's your one chance to do like strike missions and create something and score pumping waves and test what you maybe want to like introduce to the world tour in 2021 2022 to make surfing a more appealing sport and it still just ends up being in like one foot wobbly like sideshore waves and it's ultimately and what it looks like to me from the outside is it's just ticking the box and like appeasing the sponsors they had these like partnerships sold in previously to the corona going down they have to like fulfill them or do something x amount of events whatever it is like Oh, here, let's quickly throw this one together in Brazil, this one here, and this one here. Yeah. Um, and then on the other side, you've got Surf 100, where there's like no sponsors. Sam's trying to like charge or is charging $14.99 to watch it, and it's just extraordinary. It was so good. And, and you know, I, I didn't catch the first one. I caught sort of the, in the aftermath of it and just bits and pieces. But I was, you know, as a surf fan and, and, and as somebody that's that's got a lot of background with the WSL and, and I'm a huge WSL fan. Like we, we talk so much, like Dima just said, we talk so much shit on the WSL. Like, But it's not really shit talking. It's more just like, you know, we, we want you guys to do better. Yeah, this, we, I hope it's like constructive criticism. Yeah, exactly. That way. Well, and it probably doesn't, but no, it I, hopefully not. it does. But 
The Surf 100 felt like the future of surf events and not just because of COVID. It felt like even if COVID didn't exist, Surf 100 is the way I want to watch surfing. I, I didn't mind. I, one of the things I thought was so cool that we haven't really talked about is the way that the crowd just sort of just let them go. Like they just let them have it. Now, I don't know how much they did that with the lowers crowd, but obviously if you're Kolohe and you're, you know, yeah, and those, guys, and those guys, any, they own it anyway. Any one of their home breaks, whoever it is, they kind of control the crowd, right? But yeah. North, North Point was amazing because what is normally would be a packed day. Although, like, the local guy got the best wave of the, the day. The local guy got the wave like, of the day. And one of the best waves of boys that they've ever seen come through there. And even better. That yeah. is the best. So, to me, that's even just the bigger argument for the whole thing. <laughs> it feels like surfing. It doesn't feel like a compromise. It doesn't feel like, oh, well, they didn't really, you know, there wasn't anything. It's, there was a lot of, it, again, no stakes, no world titles on the line. But those guys all wanted to win that thing. Totally. You know? And, yeah, it felt like... Bragging rights. Yeah, it felt like they really wanted to win. There was that competitive spirit. And naturally, there is when there's pumping waves. Right. So that's how you get that, right? If there aren't real stakes, you will have it when there's pumping waves because somebody wants to get the best wave of the day. Jack Robinson wants to get the best wave of the day by far. And you could see it like if it was physically tearing them up that they missed that wave that that kid, Marty, or whatever his name was, the local kid that got yeah. it, right? It was like killing oh, them dude, and, and they couldn't stop talking about it Robo never stopped talking about it Robo <laughs> just was going I said how was that wave what was that wave like I would have given you 300 bucks for that wave or whatever the, yeah. I mean it, but it was it was literally 20 minutes after that wave broke he's still up in the guy's face going I can't believe I didn't take that wave off you and that's what's so great about it and then just beyond that the, the shoulder programming right the interviews like even though it's 100 minutes of just you know there was big lulls between waves yeah. um, and which North Point is because of the direction the way it's got to come in and funnel through the bay but it just didn't feel like it like everything from the Grom that dropped in on Jacob and then getting interviewed on the beach to Snake to to just the guys being mic'd up in the water now understanding you you know miking up the guys in the surf for the WSL event would be lame because it's two guys in this and they're not talking right yeah. But like even just hearing his sounds, like you hear the guys. I mean, I think Grunts football did that first, the NFL, right? Yeah. And you just hear the banter going on, and then when the guys come in, and it just adds another layer to it that makes it more uh, probably easier to like sit through the, the the long lulls and the different things, you know. Well, I think sometimes you know, and and I've tended to do this with a lot of projects. So I get you, know, you get a project from a client. And sometimes you just overthink it. You want to make it bigger than it needs to be. You want to, you know, you just really want to kind of get. You want it to be this amazing thing. I feel like that's where the Surf League has gone. I feel like World Surf League has taken this and they're like, we have to be this huge tour. We've got to, we've got to go to all, we've got to take this whole traveling circus to all these different locations. We've got to have this big premium, you know, event site. Everything has to be like picture perfect, right? But really at the end of the day, it's a digital experience. When I was there, we never, we, t- we always talked about it really kind of, as much as it's, it's a shame, it kind of doesn't matter what's happening on the beach because you're talking about a few hundred fans, maybe a few thousand fans versus millions, right? So you're you're not you're programming everything to to the to the online or the or the broadcast experience. You're not programming it to well, what's my, happening on the beach. My thing is like if they just worried less about like trying to make content around surfing and focused on using that same content team and this like young talented content team that they have and making actual content for the events and during the events yeah like and for those heats for those long lulls the broadcast would just be something so much more spectacular and so much more entertaining and and just so much easier to watch for, spend and justify spending hours and hours watching i mean jay davies tugboat driver yeah or, you know like like, <laughs> like i'm sorry but wsl how do you not get this thing when you're showing your events 
there's all these people in and around the event that you that are even if it's not one of the surfers. Like there's all these stories that are happening. Yeah, go tell. Paint Stacey. me a picture about 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 where I'm sure not sure exactly what the town was called in France. What's the town there? Not Osager. That were, was Anglet where they had it. Anglet. Okay, so I want to know everything there's no about Anglet. Like bring me there. Yeah, give me a get reason me, to come next year and watch the event live. Get me excited about Anglet and get Anglet excited about having you back because now that you've been talking about Anglet and who the legends from there. What was this like? What's a great story about that? Yeah, place? I mean, there's a famous there's famous footage there from that boat getting washed up the rocks coming into the harbor, the Anglet Harbor. You yeah, know, right. Like, which was like broke the internet, whatever. Exactly. Went viral a few years ago. Like show that and what it looks like on a monster swell instead of just like this like. You know, and then you can get away with it being like soupy two foot, like. But that's US. you can get away with uh, even when the WSL is cranking, even if you're at Chopu and you're at the best possible surf ever. You know, the fact is, is you still have these long lulls. Our sport is like plagued with that. And instead of we talk about this all the time, but instead of listening to, you know, and again, Joe, like Joe Chappelle's amazing. Like, all these guys are so good at what they do because to be able to sit there and talk about that and and be. And be intelligent about it the whole time. Like you can talk shit all you want about these guys, but uh, but that's a yeah, hard job. I did dude. the uh, the high line last year, or the year before J Bay. Yeah, last year, and I hadn't been back in the booth there for ages. And just like the level of like conversation going on in in this year, telling you what's coming up, and trying to concentrate, and then spew it out, and still make it somewhat yeah comprehensive. They're gnarly. Uh, understanding. Yeah. No. I mean, I think that was uh, I, my. So I think you know, I guess the, the end of the day, if you can keep people entertained like 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 stab like the stab one hundred does it the um, or surf one hundred does it's it's the whole way through you're never you're never bored there's never a moment where you're like oh I guess we're just waiting for a, a lull I mean typically even if it's there's a lull you're talking to like you said you're talking to Jake on the beach you're talking to the kid that just burned Jacob Wilcox you're, you're there's there's always something going on and they, and they're leaving enough for improvisation and to keep it like in the moment and then there's also even just to the point of branding like how the the surf 100 branding the the sort of wild posting you know the sort of wheat paste kind of posting behind it just look bitching and modern well, it's not and cool an afterthought and, right it's like it's no. the lead in with it and it's just so good and everything's integrated anyway so so he, and again everybody knows we're friends with stab but the but like look these guys you know and if, and by the way if it was shit house we'd call we totally we can't wait to you call know, like bullshit sam, like sam. i spoke to sam afterwards <laughs> and he's like there's there's a lot of things i need to fix there you know there's yeah. a lot of like there's a lot of issues a bit of the some of the audio here and there but he's going and doing it and he's putting up his own cash you know like you know those things are expensive to do you've got 11 cameramen standing around guys mic'd up then you doing the live production with dane sol and slim and yaden this is exp- this is the expensive operation with asking very little in return. You know, fourteen ninety nine. I think I'd pay twenty five bucks for that. Like I I, I'd pay twenty five bucks, kind of no problem at all. But do you go like so? Somebody else was like, you know, I think it was nine ninety nine. I would definitely buy it, right? Like, and it would be. So, do you go with like less people, more expensive, or more people, less expensive? And that's I go kind of the conundrum. You're probably right, and I think you probably go more people, less expensive. But I think what you can do. I like the idea of just subscribing to Stab, That's and, what I and think. then or any of the like. I would do the same thing if I was WSL. I would be like, I don't, I don't care if we have a hundred thousand viewers at, at total. Uh, I'm going to charge for a you know an annual subscription to WSL and and let the chips fall where they may because at some point that thing has to make money and at some point Samsung has to make money and I, I would just go like, look, everything on Stab again. You've had this conversation. You and I've talked about this, but but I and I don't and obviously there's reasons he hasn't done that, but it feels like there's such an opportunity there. 
Totally. And it's just, it's it, what it does is it provides like cash flow up front to be able to create more amazing content. Yeah. Because like, let me tell you, even if, if there was 10,000 people spending 10 bucks a month, you know, $2.50 a week to view the content and that would be 100 grand, Sam would spend every one of that 100 grand that comes in on creating better, uh, more appealing content, live events, everything. You would get your you would get the value back tenfold as yeah, a consumer because the integrated branded content model for him is just is just broken, right? Because well, it's broken for everyone. It is right because I mean, unless you, costs unless too much to make. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, you have to have a huge staff, which then like something like COVID nineteen happens, and like you have to wax your whole staff, but you're still expected to put the same output out. Yeah. Uh, and that's the difference, right? And that's the challenge. But talking about like on the media side, though, I did read that Sean Doherty has bought Surfing Life, which is really cool. Okay. Yeah. So so Sean has been working on he's been working with patagonia as like a big he's been a big like activist in australia the last kind of year or two on bringing awareness to the, like the mining and all that you know fighting the bite and all that but now he's decided to put his money where his mouth is instead of complaining about print and all that and he's bought surfing life and they're going to try to bring it back and do like a little rag and bones team and you know small hustle printed out independent so if you're a surfer too and you're in Australia, like look out for that. I don't know when it'll be landing on shelves, but I know they're going to do it quarterly. Yeah. But definitely buy that and support that too. I saw a cool article that uh, stabbed it on him, so check that out. Yeah, for sure. Um, on that same note of of um, of uh, well, I was going to actually, you know, I'll let you save that one for the Doomers Rumors. I was going to talk about the Nike thing, but we can, oh, let's we can just throw put... it in right now. Okay. So you know, on the on the in the in the and I'll just stick with the theme, right? So the theme to me is support surf right totally and we're always big advocates of that and the right kind of surf too right like you're sure. not going and going like not the right not the wrong kind of surf well not like <laughs> the big corporate brands that don't do anything for surfing right that's right and like talking about that that's what nike is doing so yeah stab came out with an article that nike are getting back into surf i immediately had a few surfers text me being like yo what's up with this so we hit up one of our insiders he was sitting with tinker hatfield at the time and when we text him and he kind of messaged us back what it actually looks like and from the understanding is that it's purely just a distribution play so essentially they're like how do we like get into the surf stores because there's obviously thousands of surf stores across america and whatever those are and and how do we like draft off the surf culture and get out and grow our distribution and then like wet our foot that way so if you're a surf store or a surfer Please do not buy Nike. Yeah. Do not take them back. They already ruined surf. Like what no one understands is the middle class of surfers, and, I, and I'm repeating myself because I've said this a million okay. times, yeah. but the middle class of surfing, myself included, was gutted by Nike coming in because what happened, they offered these guys, this is before they even bought Hurley, such high salaries that the surf brands couldn't compete. So they had to wax their whole middle, their whole team in the middle to be able to like justify being able to keep Dane, Jordy, these kind of guys. And awesome, these guys made out like bandits. But all the other surf culture and all everything in between just got destroyed. Yeah, and then they just decided to pull out. They're That's like, ah, nah, they dropped just sixty kidding. million on Nike SB. Or I think yeah. that was the budget, and then just like, oh, that kind of sucked. Like, we'll see you later. Yeah, yeah. So, or on six on six point So yeah. don't take them back. Vans might be this huge corporate company, but they they spend money in surf. They give us amazing surf films. Everything they do, they give us is for free. The events that they sponsor, they really invest back in surf because they consider surfing and skating their two main priorities. Well, don't forget, Vans is big because they are authentic and they are rad like there's yeah. a reason that they're that way they're not big because of some other thing don't get they're me big wrong because they started in surf and skate i love sneakers and i love nike and a lot of the sh- you know I, I own a bunch of pairs in them yeah. but 
they're not they don't just they don't have a place and they don't belong in surf right unless they're going to come in and do it the right way they're the same just snowboarding they just destroyed it yeah they, and, they did yeah and it, and it kind of left a hole in the industry and, it, and it's hard for consumers to understand what we mean by ruined it right they didn't ruin it because they weren't cool or something like that they ruined it because of exactly what damien said they drove up the 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 price tag of the top talent and everybody else then had to and it's unsustainable and then they also at retail so they the distribution model was that they had so they're they're, such high dollars they could go in anywhere and just get distribution wherever the fuck they wanted to they'd buy distribution if they needed to and then all of a sudden they've they've kicked out all these other little mom rad little brands that were trying to like you know little sprout as brands that were trying to survive and just maybe kind of coming up Boom, Nike comes in, they take all that floor space, all that retail space, when we used to have retail stores, um, and and all of a sudden, you, there was no place for, you know, you've only got so much floor and shelf space, there, you're not going to have any space for those smaller brands at that point. So now Nike's come in, then they just go, oh, we're kind of over snowboarding, we can't make a billion dollars on it, so fuck it. And then they leave. And then what's left is like whoever's sort of there Hanging holding the on, bag. yeah. And, and managed to survive. Right. And so, like... You know, and by the way, I don't think just just in full disclosure, I don't think Tinker had any real idea about the surf thing either. No, just, no, just no. so we're not we're not saying Tinker said anything. <laughs> no. I think this was that conveniently a very good friend of ours is very good friends with him. The sense they got was that now we could be wrong. What if we're wrong? It'd be super awesome if we're wrong and they come in and they actually start to behave like in a way that's look if you're that's helping surfer. surf. And the one, and these guys come and offer you some cash to keep surfing. Yeah, take, take it. it. Yeah, yeah, take and run for the hills. Why not? Um, but if you're a consumer, yeah, if you're a consumer and you're don't a surf store, hype. like be be weary and understand that you need to sell more shoes. And it's like you know, people buy Nikes and it's an established brand. They probably offer favorable terms, but yeah, keep them at an arm's length. They don't deserve our like hard-earned dollars just yet. They've got to do a lot more for it and provide a lot more value to the surf community. And you know, that's what. So it was so great, and that's why SEMA was originally formed to like keep the outsiders out if they're not coming in and doing it the right way. Yeah, that's right. Um, so the other news that we've got isn't really surf news, but it's news news, and, and a, a bit of it does obviously affect surf. So fires and hurricanes. Um, so we've got fires here, which don't really help the surf at all, um, which is kind of a bummer. But it, unless it, we get swell and it's offshore, I guess. But for the most part, fires and surf don't really work. But on the East Coast, which is this new thing where the East Coast just will not stop pumping. And I know they're going to have all this coastal erosion and all the effects from global warming. And we all realize how pretty re- bittersweet, right? Yeah, it's a terrible problem. But I will say this, like when I was a kid, the the East Coast got a swell like once every couple months. They might get a swell. It's more consistent than California. Almost, Bro, at least they get the better summer. waves. Like They've had a bunch. Of, Miami's had a bunch of surf this year. Yeah. Like I got... We got pretty good waves on Friday and Saturday with uh, a couple of buddies, and we came out and we were like pretty chuffed with ourselves. We got a couple of nice barrels, found them down the beach, and then like they st- we started sending each other like videos that we saw from like Brett Barley and these different people on the East Coast, and like it kind of deflated a whole session. Yeah, yeah like, you guys got head dips and they're getting the like East Coast yeah. is good, even though it is you know it used to be inconsistent. It's way better than California when it's good. Right, it's like, like peaky A-frame barrels up and down the beach for like miles as for far miles. as you can see. Yeah. And, and I think that's, you know, so we have to kind of contend with that. Um, I'm stoked those guys are getting waves. It's awesome. And then they got to surf in the winter in the most, you know, horrendous Freezing conditions. Frigid, yeah. And they're just all so radical. So every single one of you guys that does that, right on. Um, and then the, the, the last thing we have in this sort of intro is just to talk about my favorite subject, Donald J. Trump. What a piece of shit. Like, you know, not, so 
He has two wait, kind wait, of things. Wait, he's the Messiah. What are yeah. you talking about? <laughs> he is the QAnon Messiah. He <laughs> obviously this. I think it came out on Sunday, so it'll be two days ago when you guys hear this about his taxes, right? Mm-hmm. And that he paid zero tax, and in 2016-17, he paid like seven hundred fifty dollars, and that he paid zero tax. And he'd taken seventy six million of you know in government. What was it? It was like no, he actually got a tax refund. Tax refund. His tax refund. He got cash back from the IRS up, up to the tune of seventy six million, right? right? And this doesn't make him a good businessman. This makes him a crook. Yes. Like that is a crook. And yeah. I, and like you had a great point when Chad and I were talking about it earlier and I kind of was like, how's this guy? Because, you know, it's just consumed so much of our news and it will until November 4th and he, he's hopefully taken out of office. But they need the, the left-wing media needs to focus, and this is what you were saying, Chad, needs to focus on the fact that he's such a shitty businessman over him not paying taxes because well, Apple doesn't pay taxes. Amazon doesn't pay taxes. That's right. Like we don't these, pay, you know, when, when you're, well, we do pay taxes, but the- I paid $17,000 this yeah, year. Yeah, we paid- we paid, a change for what I make. Yeah, right. So we paid, we paid a lot of, we paid, we do pay taxes. The problem is, is that, that the, the focus, if, so- if you're listening to this podcast, you probably, well, you probably, you know, the people that don't listen to this podcast anymore are, are Trump supporters because I'm sure the people that do listen to this know that it's probably not a good place for them. Um, but if if you're like me and you want to and you're trying to, you know, create some strategy and, and how you're going to take this guy out, I want to know. So Trump's where, what he owes is about th- close to 400 million and some say north of 400 million what he owes. And, he's gonna, and that's going to come due in the next three to five years who they think the bulk of that goes or is is credited from is Deutsche Bank. And Deutsche Bank is sort of the Russian oligarch bank, right? So the reason that the reason that I think we need to be looking at this is not because he didn't pay taxes. Dude, you know like you said, Microsoft, I mean my I mean I'm sure my, who knows, Apple doesn't pay taxes. You know Amazon didn't no, pay taxes. Corporations they don't pay, pay taxes. taxes. It's not really how it works. Usually taxes are paid through payroll and things like that. Like that, these corporations get those breaks for for good reasons. So let's not focus on that. We need and to focus on and his. Obviously, his argument is obviously one like fake news, whatever. That's yeah, his yeah. Thing. But he's saying like, well, all good businessmen because I saw the opportunity in tax breaks and tax, you know. And so and back. so, kind of like I'm not sweating for that. And yeah. and I mean I am because it's it's unethical for you to say that you you know, support our troops and all that other stuff. And meanwhile, all you're willing to contribute to those troops is 750 bucks. Like you can pay as much taxes as you want. And what he wanted to pay was nothing or 750 bucks. That's how much he cares about the troops. So anybody in this whole thing that's saying, oh yeah, but it's the troops and he, or he, or not the troops, sorry. They're saying it's, it's this, he's such a good businessman because he's, he's basically, you know, he's so smart. He knows how to not pay taxes. Wouldn't you want to know, not know how to not pay taxes? Well, that's fine if you're the candidate. But if you've been in office for four years and you're the one that's you're claiming that you're the guy that's for you're the the the, the everyman president, you're the you're you're for the little guy, you're for the working man, and you're supposed to be you know adjusting the tax code, draining the swamp, making sure that all those billionaires don't get all that money. Well, all Trump did was every single part of that tax code, every single part of that tax break. What he did was make that work best for him and and well, his family. That's well, he's it. been he's been to Mar a Lago two hundred ninety three times since he's been sworn in as president. Exactly. So give you an idea of what that cost. I think the cost is like sixty million or something. And that's just, just Mar a Lago. Think about Doral and all of his other golf courses. He always played golf two hundred ninety three times. But whatever the right. cost of the Secret Service and him going out and this you know this extended cost every single time is how much money has cost the taxpayer. So anyway, the the uh, the the story here and please left wing media please stick with it is. He is beholden to somebody for that money. Those somebodies are probably Russian. 
and or foreign governments. Oh, by the way, he did pay a bunch of taxes to foreign governments too. Like he paid yeah, those he taxes. Yeah, he paid more. And, yeah, he paid more. Because they don't have the taxes. loopholes. Yeah. So he paid all the taxes to like Turkey and these other countries. No problem. He won't pay the tax on his, in his own country. And he meanwhile wants to raise everybody else's taxes to support these crazy military projects. So um, fuck you, Donald Trump. Yeah. And anybody that and likes Donald Trump. November 3rd. Remember to vote, right? If you don't vote and you're like, oh, I don't like either party. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's a shitty one because if you live in California and this is like you never want to tell a young person this, but like your vote really doesn't count no. because it's shitty bipartisan government. Exactly. You know? and, but he has to lose by landslide. So it does count. Yeah, it he has does. to be like removed and be like, okay, you lost by like 15, 20, 20% of the votes. So for all the people that, all the thousands of people that listen to us, you know, look, we're not, you know, we don't have the uh, Joe Rogan size audience yet, but we're growing pretty fast. And what we want to make sure is that everybody that does listen to this podcast goes out and votes. This is some really serious shit. If you are a Trump supporter, then go ahead and vote for Trump, but just you probably shouldn't surf anymore, I think. Absolutely. With what's happening in the world, California especially, you know, yeah. and then my, uh, California in the East Coast with the hurricanes and all the stuff, what's mm-hmm. going on in the environment, it's, I mean, you just saw, I think there was this, a chunk the size of, was it like Texas broke off the other day, the biggest chunk off in the end. Yeah, it was like the size of Texas. Huge. Yeah. Broke off again. And it's just like this, it's just happening at a frequency that's so far beyond what they expected or even predicted. Right. And I mean, this is what, so, so I think if, if we can, and again, it might be way, way, way too late. It might've been too late back when, you know, maybe Gore should have won and maybe we would have been in a better place. Well, that's what someone else told me this weekend yeah. when we were going surfing and we we're talking a bit about it. So they were like, man, imagine how different the world would have been right now if Al Gore had won. Oh, it would have been, yeah, yeah. incredible. And not Dick Cheney, really, because Dick Cheney. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we would have, we would have, well, just a porn. we, we, we might not have had 9-11 because maybe Al Gore would have paid attention unlike these other idiots. And maybe if you do believe that 9-11 was actually a terrorist attack and not an inside job. I believe it's an inside job. I kind of do, too. We're putting our QAnon hats on now. <laughs> yeah. I, I know that we're not, we're not supposed to be conspiracy well, theorists. I just believe there's more to it than meets the eye. A hundred percent. Like the buildings don't just fall down like blocks yeah. away. They're like this still hasn't been like justified or how it happened. And you, planes don't just burn at such a high... The, the, Jet fuel doesn't burn at such a high temperature that it can melt steel and just a plane can just disappear. Well, your father-in-law would be able to talk about yeah, it, right? Because yeah, he's, he's an engineer. He knows an, all this stuff, right? He's an engineer at NASA and Boeing. Right. right. He works with SpaceX and that. And, he, yeah, and we're, not saying that, we're not saying that, that Dumas' father-in-law has ever said that 9-11 is an inside job <laughs> yeah, because that could get him in some trouble. Yeah, these views... Are, these, well, how, how does the Foss copy go? These, the, the views expressed are clearly the opinions of the... <laughs> yes, the views, the views expressed in this podcast are clearly the opinion of the host. Uh, and I think that's about it. Yeah. So, okay. All right, well, let's let's get into listening to some uh, some Andy Walsh. I, I think it'll make us all a lot smarter. Um, at least we, we felt a bit smarter after we listened to it, so hopefully you will too. Walshy. There he is. How are you, mate? I'm doing well, man. Hey, Damien. How you doing, Andy? Good. Long time, brother. I know. It has been a while. When was the last... I've seen you since... I mean, we first met right when I first moved to the US with Geordie. We went to Oxnard with Kingy. But, yeah, that's right. That's right. But, but I've seen you at Red Bull through the years, but it's been about four or five years since I've seen you, I think. And then how long ago... I know you still work a lot with Red Bull, right? But you moved on as like full-time from there? Yeah, no. We le- I left about three years ago. And yeah. now we have this sort of skunk works company 
that sort of sits between, so funnily enough, it's a long story, but Logitech of all brands decided they wanted to do human factors stuff. And, but they recognized that they didn't have, like if we worked for them a lot, you know, we'd lose our edge in the performance space because they, they didn't have any framework or anything. It's not like Red Bull had no human performance program, but had athletes. Yeah. So we've been just building that. So half the time we get paid to um, sort of work on their stuff, which is mostly around esports and streamers and influencers. And then the other half of the time we get to go and do whatever we want with other communities, groups. So we get to play, just pick the cool shit and go do it. So it's super well, fun. That's it, man. The cool don't pay the bills. If the other stuff pay the bills and let you do the, the stuff you're passionate about with athletes and yeah. all these wild extremists. What what would you say your what would be your title these days? I'm now the co-founder of Liminal Collective. They called me the Chief Performance Officer. They love a title here, don't they? Tell us about the business. So the the Liminal Collective was sort of an idea born out of the community that we developed over all the years and, and, and all the different experiences we'd had working with talent. So you think about all the communities surrounding just the Red Bull portfolio and all the different sports there. And then you think about the creatives and artists and then all those institutions, laboratories, communities working in the government, the military, in the arts, the culture, every one of those communities had people sort of passionate around human performance. And that really was sort of like, what do we do if we think about that community and aggregating all that horsepower and experience and pointing it towards programs or human performance, you know, objectives, if you like. So the sort of collective is this sort of global community of people passionate about sort of human factors and each with very unique and distinct backgrounds and skill sets. And that's really the horsepower. We can sort of take on any project because someone in the community is probably an expert in that area and we just point, point the people and run. And what are your deliverables typically like? Well, you know, it can be, it's completely bespoke and customized. Like if it's a corporate community, it may be kind of classical stuff around team leadership. It may be, you know, in a sports environment, you know, obviously the, the optimization in, in the culture and the arts, we're doing a lot of stuff on creativity and, and sort of harnessing that creative uh, talent and how to, how to actually develop creative talent. And in fact, across the board through all our communities right now, sort of creativity in, 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 as sort of the ultimate sort of performance metric is sort of the thing that everybody's really digging deep with us on. And, sort of, and it can come from an elite military group or a corporate group or, or an athlete group. It's like, how do we think differently? How do we train our group to look around the corners and, and, and sort of see beyond the horizon? So it's kind of all falls under this sort of explorer mindset. But anyway, uh, given the, the talent in the, in the collective, though, it's really, what do you want to do? Do you want to, you know, nothing's off the books anymore, we say. Now, you've got to have the bucks to pay for it, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nothing's off the books because globally the horsepower is, is there. And if you really want to get something done that's just right out there, that's never been sort of thought of or done before, and you really want to, you know, sort of push the limits of space. We've, we've, we've kind of selected that community to be people who are really comfortable on the edge, who people who like to be in space where things are really ambiguous, chaotic, risk is really high, and, and, and just pulling that sort of group around the problem and or the challenge and then letting it all run. It's working out great. An interesting way into a lot of this is difficult situations that actually build character, right? And, and you guys have been 
in pioneers at, or you have been a pioneer at taking controlling that risk of those, of those danger, potentially dangerous situations and putting people through these exercises multiple different times in order for them to be able to, to learn how they react difficult. No, I, th- I think you know, I think the, the sort of premise of sort of any of this sort of spectrum is sort of, if you think of the individual, it's sort of, we thought of put in the context of sort of like the human 2.0 which is kind of cliche now, but what's that next step for you as a person? And, and as you, you said so accurately, our first principle there is anchoring in really deep self-reflection. Like, who are you? What are you about? Now, not who do you want to be or what do you portray, you know, in the office when you're, you know, sort of putting on your professional avatar. It's like, who, who are you deeply inside? And then, once you sort of get that level of interception and understanding of who you are, where, where do you want to go? And sort of so as an individual, those sort of uh, evolutions, training evolutions or challenges are, are really about just sort of putting you in situations where you get to look at yourself in a different light and, and you hold the mirror up to yourself. And, you know, there's a saying in the business sort of there is who you say you are and then who you show up as. And then, you know, as soon as we turn the heat up a little, it's a quick way to get you to, see yourself in, 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 and the good and the bad you know I, I think i under pressure or under a challenge or in a, even in, a, in, in just a just a even in a boring situation i'd like to think i manifest a bit a good version or a better version of myself but sometimes the reality is you know you are who you are so that's not right or wrong that's just okay if that's not what you want to be how do we help you get there and then when you go to sort of the team environment even in a team setting we're always about you know you got, you got to be pretty good and pretty self-aware as an individual to be a good member of a team and so even in a team environment we strip back to the individual first you know great teams are made up typically of great individuals and then yeah and then our broader context is up sort of one individual sort of teams of individuals and the sort of humans 2.0 and then humanity 2.0 sort of how do we take all these lessons and sort of give them away such that people who don't typically get the chance to learn these things in their in their career or craft get access to some of this information. How difficult is it to get to that kernel of, of who you are for people? Because I think if you're an athlete, let's just use an athlete for example, you can use an athlete and a creative, probably both equally. But if you're an athlete, you are a surfer and you're a great surfer and that's what you've always done. And that's kind of the culture you've grown up in and people have rewarded you for that. How do you get to the place where you help people learn who they actually are because that's a different thing. What you do and what you are typically like kind of, there's probably a blurry line between those two things and to extricate one from the other and to separate them and then be able to focus on one and the other. Cause I think that's what you've done a great job at is, is being able to go, okay, we're going to worry about your performance. We're going to look at all your blood work and we're going to do your brain scans. We're going to do all that sort of tactical, physical, physiological uh, endeavor, but then what, what, when you strip it all back, who, what are you left with? And so how do you get people to identify that? Well, I think it's sort of that premise of, you know, our whole f- philosophy is like, like better at you first, then, then, then no matter what you're trying to get better at, you'll do it. So once you get better at you, and so that is exactly as you say, you know, if you're tied, if who you are is tied to what you do, then you'll, your sort of self-worth and, and being can be tied to the, the, the swings of success of your career. And that can be, you know, that's, that's setting you up for disaster because eventually you're going to get your, 
your ass handed to you and, you, and, you, and you're going to get beaten and you, you're going to be on the downside of that career as an athlete. And if, if that's all you're anchored on, then you're in a position where you're, you know, not right or wrong again, but it's, it can be sort of, sort of a, a, thin, a thin line you're walking. So to the question, how do you help? Well, you know, even sometimes just sitting down with the individual and really digging deep into the conversation about where they see themselves, not I won a world championship, hey, you know, that's great, I get it, but even beyond. And, and so the timing of that is always critical. It's really hard to sit down with a 12-year-old and say, you know, who do you want to be when you grow up? Because they're like, you're not my dad. Come on, give me a break here, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and honestly, the, the, it, it, they, they're having fun. Their life should be more enjoyable. But when you're sort of getting to that point in the career where you start to say, okay, a professional athlete is maybe my, 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 my path forward, sitting down with them and sort of saying, look, this is great, but let's create a bigger picture of what, what, what's your legacy, you know. How do you want to be remembered? But maybe what's what's what you know we we have exercise. What do you want to have written on your gravestone? You know, write that down now. If the, if the car was to run you over tomorrow, bang, what's that gravestone going to say? Or what's your best friend going to say about you on the uh, in, in the eulogy? And I think all those sort of little introductions you then pair with things like there's some great interoceptive uh, tests, psychological sort of assessments you can do, which again, I really like. You know. There's pros and cons to all of them, but sometimes they just get you to think a bit more deeply about what the process and where you are at. And then ultimately, you know, the best part is if you can create experiences, if you can create a, an immersive experiential uh, model where people can put themselves in, in comfortable situations and, you know, it's a lot easier to be who you'd like to be in a comfortable situation. It's all, it's nice. And then, you know, that you're out on a, maybe it's a hiking trip or something, the rain starts falling, the mud, you can't sleep. You start to get unpack that person and they get again to say, wow, this is, this is, this is me. This is who I am when things aren't going well. And, 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 and then there's lots more to it. But in, in a general snapshot, it's always done in a supportive and, and sort of caring way. But you also have to know that you have to sometimes give people a little bit of a shove and, and give them a little bit of a nudge to sort of get to that space where, things aren't working out and sort of unpacking that in a, in an appropriate way. So you learn. And is that sort of part of developing, is that part of the protocol? Is it, is there a specific moment where that happens or is there something that you generally do? Um, is, is it more of a case by case and do you do some of that stuff because it's so human? Do you do that by feel? Yeah, it's always. I mean, in many cases, it's the person, it's the talent, the individual you're working with. They will be directing you. It's sort of this idea that we are helping people get better is completely false. It's actually, we are listening to their stories. They're usually in, in our business really good anyway. And, they've, and they know how to do what they do. So they're the ones who can see either maybe where their gaps are, not always, or more importantly, they see where the, the sport or the, the industry may be heading and they go, okay, I'm thinking about doing this. And, and we're like, well, you know, that's then given your permission and what you're seeing, let's craft something unique for you and allow you to sort of challenge yourself, put yourself out there. Uh, and again, supporting them all the way. So, that, you know, when they do fall over the edge, you know, you catch them. You know, you know, once you find out who you are, you learn who you are, you learn how you perform, um, you find out what you love, 
uh, it's there's something about that that feels a little bit like like that Joseph Campbell kind of idea of like following your bliss, right? If what you're good at, what you love, you'll probably be really good at, and what and what you're good at could likely you know create some success for you. And if that's the case, that's probably pretty good for your ego and good for your self esteem. And it's a cascading effect. Does that have some resonance in in your work? I think it. I think it's a powerful narrative. And you know, I, th- I think in, in in a lot of high performance, there's a lot of energy spent looking at what's next. But yep. for us, sort of for us, the future of HP is really looking back and, and, and we're spending an inordinate amount of time looking at Indigenous cultures, First Nations, sort of traditional owners. And that, that whole premise of their uh, livelihood and, and how they integrated their societies, again, into nature, but as, as, and to be successful was they were kind of the original performance directors, high performance communities. And what they had to do and how they overcame it. And if you think of a rite of a passage is sort of something that's sort of put there to put someone in a position to really explore their themselves at a very deep level with all the mentoring and support that goes into it. But ultimately you were put to a challenge and, and, and that challenge emotionally, spiritually, physically sort of prepared you for that next phase in life. And I think a lot of what's missing in, in many cultures and especially in the Western world nowadays is, Sort of that that idea of what 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 am I really here for? What am I? What's my purpose? And and I think COVID, you know, if we, we fast forward to this last six months, is a lot a lot of people are reflecting back to us in our world of saying, "Wow, this really opened my eyes to the fact that I I'd been sort of on a path that I hadn't really chosen, but I'd ended up there, and now I'm reimagining what I could do." So yeah, you know, I think there's lots of great threads and narratives and metaphors to pull from that the work of Campbell and, and, of, and again, the ancient sort of wisdoms of the indigenous peoples. It's, it's sort of just the way humans interact with, with their own world. Yeah. But at, at the same time, preparing them for that. So preparing them, giving them tools versus good luck. You're out there, have fun. You know, it's, it's like, how do we set up uh, frameworks and structures and education to enable people to navigate the sort of the, the bigger picture of life, I guess is hey. That's a lot of the work that you actually ended up doing with Red Bull, right? Where, where you're setting up these challenges that were, that were, an, an, I guess, a, a version of what they were going to be facing and, and then help them get comfortable with, you know, the, uh, repeating that type of motion over and over and over again, facing that maybe some fear and overcoming some obstacles um, that you had intentionally put there. Uh, in order for them to learn how to deal with those perceived, maybe not dangers, but perceived. But yeah, you know, you know, you nailed it. I think what we did recognize is if you do take that narrative of sort of what humans do not like as a race, the unknown. And again, back to where we are today, you know, you know, we leverage that. And again, it's an ancient principle. If you think about walking through the, the jungle or savannah back in early sort of a, a, a sort of early evolution of humans, the mechanism that keeps you alive is tied to that sort of flight or fight response. Whereas if you do hear something in the brush or in the woods, or you're coming up against something you don't, you're not familiar with, you set yourself up to either defend or run away. You see, you're protecting yourself. And I think that unknown is sort of how we then translated all of that into those evolutions. So if you take someone like a big wave surfer, like DK Walsh, she's a classic example. Uh, you know, he's a, obviously a big wave surfer in his own right, but also part of Ian's rescue group. He did one of those stand-up programs that we designed with Cirque du Soleil, and he came off the back of that thing one day and said, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. And I think 
you know, three weeks early, he wiped out of Jaws. And we're like, no, no, come on, let's be real. He goes, no, no, no. <laughs> that, that I can handle. This is so unfamiliar, so uh, challenging to me. I had to dig emotionally to a place that I hadn't been for a while. And again, it's not to say that it, it's more dangerous. That's completely irrelevant. It's just it's so unfamiliar and different that it challenged him in a new way. And by exposing himself to that challenge, he was able to explore things about himself that he hadn't seen in, in, uh, in his normal world. And he, he says, yeah, I take that now when I'm out and I'm thinking about, it. Like, all right, I did that, I did that. And it's just sort of building up that toolkit of experiences so that you're never going to prepare everybody for the unknown because it's by definition, you, there's no framework for it, but you can prepare them to have gone through a lot of different experiences where every time it's different that they get used to the idea of facing what's different and then they're ultimately better prepared. And a lot of the top training elements around the world are, and the communities have, have mastered this. They've, they've developed systems of doing that so that the very best performers are able to handle very incongruent, chaotic, uh, sort of duplicitous situations. And they can, they don't have a plan per se, but they have a plan of how they'll approach it so they can control themselves in that environment. When we first started working together, you had actually done a, a project. You set up a skate ramp that was that had a foam pit at the end of it and a little hip for the Red Bull surfing team to go learn how to do airs because you guys, you as a as a brand and as a as a collective, uh, recognized that that was obviously going to be uh, in the future of surfing and the future of high performance. What was the you know, it seems like there was an evolution because what happens is it, in this case, it's pretty tactical. It's like, we're going to learn how these motions, these, these physical things that are mimicking the ocean. Whereas, whereas something like a stand-up comedy thing is a, is such a departure. Um, was that always part of the protocol? I mean, are there, there obviously are certain things where you have to go through those, those sort of tactical physical motions, but there's also that emotional place. I think it's all part of the same puzzle and it's just about sort of figuring out as we're doing this, how, how do you sort of bring the puzzle pieces together in the best way? And some, some have to build on others. So, you know, again, it, you probably get some value about doing some of the more exotic stuff with, with a very young or a, a less developed talent, but they've also got to spend the years doing the work, honing their craft. And, and I think there's in that case of that big air project, there's two things. One very, you know, I would say the community again is leading the way. We're starting to see in the, in the free surfing world, you know, the likes of the Geordie and, and, and at that time sort of playing around with airs. But, you know, at that time, you know, it wasn't commonplace. And there was a, you know, from an emotional perspective, the community, the, the surfing community was sort of in, in, in sort of the competition scenario was like, hey, there's, this is, surfing's about, big carving power maneuvers, you know, big waves, you know, not these tricks. So even though it was technically a new way to sort of look at maybe the future, but you're placing a bet, maybe the surf community would win and they'd outlaw airs in competition, you know, so you're placing a bet that this is something that would be vers uh, helpful. But emotionally, the talents kind of, all right, my, the rest of the community is going to look at me a little weird here because I'm practicing this stuff and, and I think that's in any creative endeavor. You have to have the courage to back yourself. And I think that courage is more of an emotional, personal courage than it is about the bravado of taking on the, you know, the beast, so to speak. And I think that's, a, that's just something that we've observed over the years is it's it, 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 really world-class talent is able to sort of think about what's around the corner or over the horizon and 
like I said, we call it that explorer mindset where you sort of see beyond what everybody else is seeing. Now that's part of it. And then you can tactically present and train for that moment. But you also have to have the courage to put yourself, your vulnerability out there and sort of back that idea and put your sort of career behind that as well. And in many cases, I think the, the uh, peer uh, pushback is, is, is harder to overcome. It, it reminds me, we went, we went down early days, we were running a snowboard training program in New Zealand with really core snowboarding group and they wanted to come in and we had the airbags and the hips and the, and the half pipes and all the things to practice. And of course they love that. As soon as we um, went into sort of say, hey, we've got to develop some leg strength here. You, you guys are buckling under the, 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 the sort of the, the, the accelerations in the ramps. You just don't have the strength to hold your body up. And it was funny, you know, the, the, the crew got it. They were like, yeah, we know, we got to do it. But you cannot film one bit of us working out in the gym because if anyone sees us working out in the gym, it'll blow our cover. So, you know, they didn't, it was kind of uncool. And it's always struck me that that sort of community, society, emotional peer thing was, was overriding to such an extent that even though they knew it was critical for what their careers would have, they didn't that that exposure to that was not cool in, in their words, not ours. And, and, uh, yeah, so it, it, it's always, I think a balance between the technical and the emotional and psychological, you know, that's, you just can't separate them. Well, and the cultural too, like you say, there's a, you know, culturally snowboarding, skateboarding, surfing. Um, I think there was a moment when Nike got involved with surfing where, where it almost, it almost became kind of more fashionable to, to be, showing fitness videos and, you know, Kolohe jumping rope and things, but he took a lot of heat for that too. Um, it's, it's just funny how the, how the culture sort of prevents some, some of this progression um, just because it's so closed minded. Yeah. And I think it's, and, and we talked about it, I think, you know, at other times, I think it's always timing, you know, it's the timing has to be, a, you have to, you can't fight the culture. The culture is what makes it so cool and great and, and unique and, 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 you know, you can have your perspective about the culture will progress. And naturally it does. It always progresses. And as much as you want it to be like the good old days, it's, it's just hard. Uh, and so we talk, you know, someone like Christian Fletcher back in the day, way before all this was popular, doing the, the aggressive airs and popping things. And people were just like, and that, you know, and that was just way early. It just didn't stick. But then later in the, in, as the sport matured again and got more you know got more exposure and people were looking for new and competitive advantages it's like I, you know I, i'm not as tight as the communities i used to be but i'm pretty sure if you can't pull it off now you're not competitive anymore andy and one of the, and one of the things you did with that i remember that training camp because geordie went to it and you guys had the phone put and it was kind of the first time surfers had got on a skateboard and tried that kind of stuff and then earlier you mentioned kind of looking back to kind of looking back to be able to go forward, right? You guys talking about the indigenous people going back there and looking at the kind of culture and the way that they uh, interacted with the land around them and their surroundings. But part of that trip you did with Geordie and those guys, you actually made them surf single fins too. So you kind of started at the beginning and then you went way ahead into the future too. And what was the tactic and how did you guys get to that place where you had single fins and foam pits? <laughs> I, I think, it, and then that's part of the, that's part of the narrative. I think it's to sort of say, it's, I think it's important to look back. And as I said, I think teaching the, the surf group we had, there was an amazing group of individuals, you know, you know, um, it was, uh, it was like, all right, there's a lot to be learned. And so we had, we had, uh, MR, Mark Richards shaped some of his classic single fins, you know, the board that he, he won at pipe. We had, 
uh, Brocky and Batty, you know, uh, come in and present sort of the nature of how they'd surfed. And we're at Lennox Head, so for the surfers in the community know that they're sort of locals. Batty lived down at, um, down at Iluka and Brocky lived at Lennox. And we sort of started that narrative and even referencing old Georgie Greenhow who'd moved to Lennox many years ago. And sort of, so think about where surfing was and where it is today. And everyone's like, oh, right, yeah, cool. And we're riding these single fins. And of course, just adapting. And from our perspective, seeing he, even in that, in that group, who's, who has that learner's mindset? Who's going to jump on this board and see what they can draw out of it versus, oh, this isn't cool or this is not going to help me. So there's lots, of, there's lots and lots of things going on with respect to that. But then you think about, okay, so that single fin that MR went on to where you are today, so what's next? And as soon as you say, all right, so there is going to be a next and so let's walk out the back and try the foam pit. Now, yeah, again, surfers have been playing and skating, and but I think the idea of directly trying to connect them, you know, was a little abrupt for everyone, so it was a nice way to start to think about bringing that to life and sort of also thinking about sort of progression as being a continuous process and and not a sort of fixed moment in time where once jumps to this, jumps to this. So... Again, again, and we want our talent to start thinking because they're the talent. What is next? So if, if it's not airs, what's next after airs or what's next after X or what's next in terms of equipment or, and starting to get them because, because they have all the talent and they have all the insight. They can usually, if they're, they're thinking that way, will inform you and that gives you a, a potentially a competitive advantage. And, and you guys, initially you started off, I know, I remember a lot of the high performance stuff when you started was, it was a lot more physical kind of stuff. And one of the, f- the first time we met was going up to Oxnard and you were with Andy King, I think. And I was with Jordy and kind of just hang, hanging, hanging around with you guys. And it was the first time that I ever learned and you guys were teaching him about lactic acid and, you know, after surfing a long day, getting on the spin bike and just kind of getting some of that lactic acid out of your system. Now, 10 years Later, everybody knows that. Everybody, you know, after a big day surfing, the guys are doing a light exercise or kind of trying to get it flowing through their body. But since then, you've moved far more across to the creative and actual mental side. When did that shift happen for you guys? We figured out that you know a lot of the a lot of the physical stuff is done now, and we need to start focusing on the mental side of it and how to kind of unlock that creativity for top tier athletes and then just everyday people. Uh, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I think what, what's really interesting is that the beauty of being part of this global sort of community is that somebody else has usually figured out the problem you're trying to solve and, and, and done it far more, uh, completely and better than you will. So you think about that process of active recovery post a tough day. Yeah. In surfing, it was fresh and new at the time, but you know, in athletics and Olympic sports, they've been doing it for 40 or 50 years. So part of the job is more just moving things around the chessboard. But I think to your point, then as an individual sort of people typically just by nature, especially athletes will default to the physical stuff because they get it. So that's an easy way to bring concepts to life around performance that without sort of, sort of running into too much cultural interference, I think is, is a sort of, when the term that Chad mentioned and then you know so you sort of all right I can help make you a bit fitter and stronger I get that because moving into the sort of social emotional spiritual psychological stuff if you start there people look at you a little bit like hey hey hang on and I think it's it's far more tangible to see results in the physical side 
So you start to um, then blend them all together. And then as you get into this sort of where we are today, you sort of recognize that, yes, you've got to do the physical work and there's a, there's a capacity there. You have to develop the, the psychological skills and the tools that you need to develop. And, and then you start to move into this, well, really, where do, where do the top, top performers sort of differentiate? And they start to think about, well, they're, they're the ones that redefine the sport. They're the ones that come in and say, hey, the sport has been on this path um, for X number of years, but now I see a future that no one else sees and I'm going to move myself into that space. And then, you know, you can typically recognise them because everybody after them sort of is now looking up to them as the standard. And I think, yeah, the recent uh, show on um, Michael Jordan, you know, the, the series that everyone was talking about, you know, Venus, Serena Williams and the power tennis of the women, these people come in and go, all right, the game used to look like this. Now the game looks like that. Now, and I think that natural creative piece is something that very few performance programs sort of touch on. And, but beautifully, like I said in that first example with the sort of Olympic athletes and the active recovery, the creative community has spent hundreds of years working on that side of the shop. So you just run over. So that's where we start to get the greatest benefit. We start to sort of toss the creatives in with the athletes, with the sort of spiritual groups and, you know, by sheer accident at Rebel, we had those communities all running around together. We had the record studio next to the weight room, next to the esports studio, next to the screening room, the filmmakers, and we just eventually collide all the three or four communities. And ultimately, they would be teaching each other. And that natural progression of sort of cognitive diversity around performance is really where we find ourselves today. So talking about that cognitive diversity, I always reference Gabriel Medina and Colleen Dino. They, uh, they came up around the same time, similar, similar year on tour. One guy's killed it, the other one struggled despite having similar skill sets, right? I think, I think a lot of it comes down to Gabs truly believes he's the best, while Colohe doesn't. He doesn't. He kind of lacks that confidence. Where does that self-belief come from? And how does someone like Colohe, who's obviously missing and has all the talent to be able to perform on that high level and win events and potentially world titles, get to that next level and actually capture that confidence? Uh, yeah, I'll have to take your word for, you know, we were fortunate to spend time with both of them early days. Um, I've watched them both since then. Uh, I'm no longer tied to their, their programs, but the, uh, the, the I, I think there's a lot, there's a lot to that. There's so what is it about Gavs's upbringing, the way he learned the community put her, uh, that he sort of surfed in the environment he surfed in and what skills did he draw on aside from the technical ability to obviously tear it up in the surf, which they both have. Um, and then potentially how did Kaloe come through and is, is there something in that natural development that, that, that sort of missed that piece that sort of gives uh, uh, Gabs the edge? I don't know the answer, but in a lot of cases, uh, you know, we, we often see around the world that sort of, Sometimes I know Kaloe's program was probably a lot more structured than Gab's. It'd be an assumption, you know, he had a growing up in California with a bit more of a formal process around him. And maybe some of that unstructured development that Gab's may have had, had, uh, had set him up for more chaotic and dynamic environments in the, in the, in the surfing environment. I mean, that's just a guess. I mean, it could be completely wrong, but for me, there's always something that's either in their development, their progressions, their, 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 their training, and whether it, you know, it could be self-belief, it could be the sheer fact that, you know, again, in, 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 in less sophisticated uh, 
uh, training environments, we see some super talents rise because they just spend a ton of time just practicing. They don't get caught up in all the other pieces. And I, I don't know nowadays. It's, these, are, these are the questions that even in our community struggles with day in, day out to try and look at environment, training, coaching. One of the great lessons of working at Red Bull was the idea that all these talents across all these action sports at the time, which were relatively new with respect to the mainstream sports world, um, they didn't have a lot of coaching. They didn't have a lot of trainers. They didn't have a lot of psychologists. They didn't have a lot of nutrition. In fact, most of them had none. Um, and they were still performing in extraordinary ways on the, in extraordinary places with, you know, high consequence of risk to themselves physically and mentally if they made mistakes, even death. And I was, that was, I was like, all right, you know, there's something to be said for the environment and how you're training and then what an environment can bring to bear in terms of your training. That's, you know, missed if you just focus purely on the science of it all. Yeah, I think you're pretty spot on. I think you're spot on with your, like, you know, like you're saying, just an assumption because you went around there when they were young, but you know, equal talents, both freakish talents, one really struggles, one doesn't, you know, uh, just comes so naturally for Gabriel when he's in a heat and those high pressure situations. But Chloe does all the right things outside of the water from training, time in the water, surfboards. You know, the free surfing is at the same level. It's, it's fascinating how it's just those small things and growing up. You know, Chad and I talk a bit about it and so much because we just spend so much time watching contests. And it's almost like that Brazilian mindset and those young kids coming up, they have these idols uh, of these top sportsmen, but they, they want to beat them. And it's that mindset and they respect them, but they want to beat them, whereas... Even from where I grew up in South Africa, we would see a Kaylee Slater or a Joel Pogerton and we'd be in awe, right? And it feels like that's how brother was when he came on tour. These were his heroes. So he'd get into a heat with them and he would struggle to dominate them, whereas Gabriel Medina would get into a heat with them and have a whole different mindset how he just wants to destroy them out of respect for them, you know, because these guys have been his idols. And to me, that's that almost diff the clear difference we're seeing with the Brazilians and the other athletes on tour. Yeah, I, I, as I, I haven't been tracking as closely nowadays. But I, I do think that, you know, there's all this anecdotal stuff in sport, which makes for great stories. I don't know how much truth there is to it, but there's, if you take boxing as one of the classics or baseball, you know, in the Dominican Republic and, and boxing and then the idea that, you know, they come from sort of underserved communities is, you know, you think about growing up in those environments, there's not, you know, there's there's not a lot to lose and you've got, you back yourself and everything you've got against this one dream and, you know, maybe makes you a little hungrier, a little bit more aggressive. And, you know, um, and I think the same is, you know, in, in many, in, in many scenarios we can, I don't think it's a rule, but you can point to people that have, that have said, look, that's my ticket out of here. And it's, you know, the, 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 that sort of, that sort of cultural cliche, if you like, there seems to be something to it. Again, you can't point to it directly, but that notion that a lot of talent comes from places where you, you know, they don't have the best resources and they don't have the best coaches, but they really have a drive and a, and a desire to, to push and break through. And I think, you know, again, maybe Gabriel had the best coach in the world. I don't know at the time, but uh, you know, it's, it's just, a, it's a funny way. And again, with any human performance story, there's always so much, that you have to sort of explore and you've also got to keep an eye on the sort of rumors and you've got to keep a, 
and, and that's where the science does play. And you've got you to keep one eye on the science and one eye on the story and try and make sure that you're not getting drawn too far down one other path because invariably neither of them are accurate, but both are helpful. The, there's one piece of this is that, that you do mention kind of throughout and in, in some of the videos I was watching, but also just in the conversations with you before that there's a spiritual element that I think might be the X factor for Gabby or, and people like that, you know, as you were talking about the boxers and people from underserved areas, in a lot of cases, there is a religious component there. So like I think in Gabby's, uh, well, in all the Brazilians, you know, the very first thing they do when they, when they win a heat and they get the heat interview, I want to thank God, you know, and there's a, there's a big component there of that, um, that I would say if there's one thing that, that Gabby believes God wants him to win and Gabby believes he can win. But I think that, the, that, that the spiritual, maybe it's not Gabby specifically, but I think that that spiritual belief that, that allows you to believe in a, in yourself in a deeper way and kind of hand that off to somebody else. Um, or to another power that that maybe that's a um, maybe there's something to that. Well, I think, um, and, and when we look at it in terms of our frameworks, we talk about spirituality as as as, as a key performance factor. We don't dive uh, into the religious piece of it because that obviously has uh, rhetoric and all sorts of you know sort of undesirable sort of connotations to it. But if you think of spirituality and when what we did do it at, at, during our time and with these high performers is we, we often ran sort of diagnostics, surveys, interviews. And one thing that popped repeatedly and nothing else actually ever did was this idea that a lot of the top performers had a higher purpose. Now, as we default code spirituality, sort of belonging to something bigger than yourself, I think that's definitely a player in these people's lives. And you could anchor it in a religion, you could, in the, in the military, it's sort of team teammate self. It's, it's, it's th that that's their, one of their frameworks for it. It's, it may be, you know, God country, you know, from a patriotic perspective, but I think even if you think about the sort of blue zones around the world and longevity, the people who live the longest, Purpose and meaning is one of the keystones to that culture. So I think if we sort of decode spirituality into that higher purpose or meaning or something greater than myself, then I think absolutely I'd be the first to argue that that's an important criteria for people pushing and having the faith in their own abilities to push beyond anything you've seen. And, and, and again, I'm not that familiar with the science. I'm sure there is a science to it, but, I'll, I'll take that one on face value, having seen it over the years, over and over and over again. So then, then in, in that case, then, then even if we just remove this sort of Catholicism piece of it, which is the sort of religious dogma part, and you add and you sort of substitute that with Brazil, right? Being the driver, being the, I'm doing this for country, like, right? Having that higher purpose for the whole Brazilian storm. And that's why a lot of these guys are performing like outside of their own skin because they have that ability, right? They just have that, that one other thing that might be pushing them that I think isn't necessarily as prevalent as it used to be for the Aussie group and definitely not as prevalent as it used to be for the Americans. Maybe it's a talent thing, but I think it's also, it's also just has to do with maybe not that same type of patriotism that, uh, or again, using patriotism as a, as a stand-in for the higher purpose. 
Um, it could could be. It could be again if you take the Olympic moments around the world, the number of uh, post sort of event reflections I've heard from the the athletes is like I, I just looked up, I saw the flag, I saw the crowd, I saw my mother and father in the in the stadium. I mean there's so many things that have lifted them up, um, uh, you know, when they thought they had nothing else to give. And I think there's definitely, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't discount any of it for that matter. I think it's uh, especially in, 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 in as, as, as serving becomes more and more competitive, you know, it's, it's, it's going to take more and more and, and, and you're going to have to look under every stone for uh, an opportunity to sort of outdo the person next to you. And, you know, that may be the reason, Yeah, it'd be a great, It'd be a great thing to sort of review and look back and say, why did the, you know, why, why was the US dominant for this period of time? Then the sort of underdog Aussies came sort of through and pushed hard and, you know, and then, and then now the sort of, you know, the, the, the sort of Europeans and the, and the, and the South Africans and, and, the, and then now the Brazilians. I mean, there's all sorts of interesting ways to see why cultures and, and especially in sport why certain communities start to pop and thrive it's 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 a, it's a it's a great conversation over a beer i tell you andy how much do you think intellect plays into performance and i don't mean intellect from like a book smart level but just sheer like human intellect and being able to understand a situation and kind of what y- your surroundings someone like you know and what and one of the great surfers that, and i always use surfers as an example just because i you know it's my background i've spent so much time around them but someone like Sean Kansdell, who he had a really average career for how good a surfer he was. He was kind of that top Aussie junior and he should have been on the world tour still to this day and won events and possibly a world title. But you would see him on land and you'd almost be mouth breathing and then you'd see him on this wave and it just looked like everything made sense. But then, you know, so as a surfer, he was top few in the world, but put him in a heat and things would just fall apart. You just make poor decisions. You know, I, I again, these are these are great stories in the sporting vernacular. I think the idea that you know, there's, you've hear it all if you've been around long enough, as 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 you both have. The idea that okay, they've over they're overthinking it. So there's this there's one school of thought that you don't want to be too smart. You know, you don't want to be too savvy because you start to think too much. And you know, um, you know, we used to talk about in rugby, which I know you also understand. You know, you, you know, you'd line up your your forwards against the wall and you throw bricks and the ones that dock, ducked were out of the, you know, you get them out. You don't, you just want someone <laughs> who doesn't think. You know? And, uh, <laughs> and I, I apologize to all the rugby players, but that was, that was a running joke when I was young. And I think that idea then, but at the same time, you also think about it, like the tactics, the sense the the, 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 the emotional awareness, the sort of, the environmental awareness to be out in the heat and looking and you're tracking the wave, you're tracking the swell, you're tracking the wind, you're tracking the competition, you're looking at the clock, you know, you, 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 you gotta have a, a surf intellect to, to, to navigate that. And that, and, and I think that's, you know, interesting over the years, as I observed uh, Kelly, you know, that was something I thought he had, you know, buckets of you, know, the ability to just, Oh yeah. Again, just the, the 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 idea of paddling north when everyone else is paddling south, and then picking up that rogue that comes out of the corner, you know, and you're like, wow, wins the heat. I think all those sorts of things are really, to me, expressions of intellect that are sort of, as you say, Damien, I mean, you can't measure them. They're not they're not book smart, but they're definitely attuned and acutely aware of their environment, and I think that requires a, a, a fair bit of nous and. And then, uh, you know, and the ability to do all of that when the pressure mounts is probably what starts to separate those who sort of 
really take it to another level and those who sort of uh, don't make it. Yeah, my, my good friend always says to me, Barry Wallens, no brains, no headache. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think that's the joke, isn't it? Yeah, we, we have all these sayings and sport is rife with them. Like, you know, head wasn't in the game, overthought, you know, all this stuff. And I think it's just our default things we say when we don't really have any idea what the hell's going on <laughs> and we start totally. to try and we just sort of it, it sort of it, it, it helps us feel comfortable that we can explain it but you know the complexity of a human one human is is more complex in terms of structure numbers of cells you name it than than the universe and then you you sort of add a human into a natural environment like the ocean and and, and, the, and that inherent complexity and you've got this this extraordinary sort of almost you know i hate to say it but this sort of almost a magical thing that happens to get someone up on a wave and surfing and and winning this there's, there's so many things that can play into that that i think we have to simplify it to make sense of it but sometimes i think we oversimplify it and and we lose the the true essence of what that really is and again you know what's the old saying only a surfer knows the feeling was it a brand logo at some point or something mm. uh but yeah that's probably more true than not one one thing um i want to touch on is whether it's from a red bull time or not but what where are some of the things that you can point to that said okay the work that we did resulted in this very specific result if we focus on that era mm-hmm. which well, is very similar to the work we did with u.s ski and snowboard which again similar to other communities I think the work is really the idea of constructing a performance culture within an organization and, and coming into um, sort of like the, the sort of marketing world of Red Bull. And, and, and I think as a team, we created a culture where performance was no longer this kind of thing that other people did to something that people started to really see as supportive and enabling for them. And I think enabling that environment and that performance environment sort of it's probably one of the more proud things that you could definitely point to because, you know, it, it started with nothing when we, well, we started. Chris Marta back in the day had the, had the great idea of bringing it to life in, in, in California here at the Red Bull headquarters. And that sort of just grew from there. And we had extraordinary people along the way supporting that narrative and, and building the sort of, you know, the resources and providing the resources for us to pull the facilities together and the, so we had motocross facilities and we had snow facilities and we did the surf stuff and we had the frame that, you know, we had training environments and projects for that. I think all of that sort of anchored in this idea that performance was something that we could do to help and support your journey and making that awareness sort of more mainstream was probably one of the, the more, uh, proud things that we, that we were part of. And I guess it's, and again, it's all timing had we done it 10 years earlier would have been laughed at 10 years later everybody's doing it. it's just that knack of we were lucky <laughs> we were lucky with the timing and and do you think the team picked up the mantle and done good things with it oh for sure i think every time you know part of the reason for exiting those programs is you sort of look at the look at the work you've been doing and and, and this is sort of my my reflection is i say wow we've, we've done some amazing stuff as a team we've had some amazing moments but you start to feel like that there's the, the group underneath that underneath you that are sort of sort of are sort of growing in their own right around the idea of the, of the career and everything. They have a lot more to offer, and you're sort of blocking them and getting in their way. So it's a little bit like you know you got to step out, and I think as soon as you step out, you, and they start to run with it, 
and they start to probably, you know, politely do things that they thought, you know, are a little bit more attuned to their style versus what you would have support uh, have done. And then they start to see the thing just take off again. And, and it always takes off in a different way and in a new direction and, and things improve as a result. So I think it, it's, I think everybody in any of these roles, you have a due date and uh, you know, something I learned really openly during that time, because I, I got to be an advisor at DARPA and an advisory board there for a while on human factors. And uh, they only keep you for three years. You come in, they pick your brains, they, they look for your insights and, and advice and experience. And then after three years, you, you know, you're old news, out you go. And I think to some extent, that's a, that's a philosophy that really is undervalued because I think you, you can easily um, become redundant and you, you in your own way become old school in that role and you have to get out. So that's where I think that's all ended up, you know. So that's to your point, it's, it's now in a better place than it was when we left and it will hopefully continue to get better with the next group that comes in. It would, it would almost be, it's quite a good concept there, just keeping people for three years, right? And just being yourself, whatever you do in three-year cycles, uh, developing yeah. a new skill, fine-tuning, and then moving on to keep, you know, you, you spoke a bit earlier about purpose, you know, and those, those, a lot of these surfers or what industry professionals, whoever you are, you come off, you come off the back of something, you're not quite sure what to do afterwards. And I think you see someone like Mick Fanning that's, you know, probably been one of the best at being able to pivot and continue what he's up to. And then on the other side is, Kelly, who's still doing the tour because he, he, I think he's added a bit of a crisis on what he's going to do next and where does he go after this because his whole life is, is, is competing. And that's why I kind of like the concept of three years. And I think especially in, in, if you want to, you know, and, and then you think about the role at DARPA there, the, the idea is to think 30, 40, 50 years into the future. You know, that's, that's what they're tasked with, to really imagine a different world and to plan and prepare for it. And to be that aggressive in terms of your innovative thinking and imagineering and your, your sort of creativity, I, I, I think you have to keep, keep the to ideas and, and talent and the freshness coming all the time. I think, you know, for, I think, you know, some of your listeners, Chad, was telling me are sort of in the sort of more business side of the shop. And I think, you know, three years will be harsh because they probably just figured out how to use a goddamn email by then. But the, the reality is keeping that flow of new ideas, whether it's with the people that you employ or whether you set up a system or a structure to enable free flow of ideas from an external community into your community, I think that is critical no matter where you are because to your point, if, if, you, if you're being exposed, say, as you said, as a surfer nearing the end of their career, but you've also seen all these other things that other people are doing, you've, you've probably got some ideas, oh, I'd, I'd maybe like to try that next. But if you just spin in the one spot and don't look over the, over the fence, you're going you're gonna to be stuck in that, in that same backyard for a long time. Well, one, Chad and I watched that movie, Social Dilemma. I think you know, everybody's kind of watching it right now on Netflix and and one of the things that we noticed and talked about yesterday is just the sheer age of like these, these executives and how young they are and how the tech world is just recycling or bringing through just the youngest talent. You see it a lot out of like all the NYU and all these schools where these top um, private equity groups are just putting in the youngest talent to keep it fresh and keep the ideas flowing to challenge the older generation that's in the business. And I think... 
it's it's like anything in in life. There's always a, a yin and a yang to it. I think there's definitely a need to bring the young blood through and keep fresh and keep going. But I also think there's a lot of lot of wisdom in the system that you should also cherish and nurture. And I think just as I said, the balance of both, because as you, as you, again, take that social dilemma, think about that platform and, and, and I'm not a social media user. So this is all said with a huge uh, uh, serving of ignorance, but the idea that you've created a platform, say Facebook to do X, Y, Z, connect friends and, and share stories. And then it can be in 20 years later used to, you know, drive certain uh, adverse or even, toxic behaviors on a global scale, you know, you'd hoped along the way that someone would step up in, in, in that organization and say, Hey, Hey, hang on, hang on. I, I've seen this before. This is, this is going, this, this has the potential to go this way if we don't put some checks and balances in place. And I think I'm not going to judge it again. I'm not that familiar with that whole, that whole platform, but I, I definitely think that you know the, the the beauty of wisdom and the age then that it comes with age is that you probably made a lot of mistakes before so you have a little bit of a a radar a spider sense if you like up for that stuff but you sort of you know you don't want that to drive all everything because it you know just inherently can crush the innovation but there's there's you need both sides of that coin and i like the idea of you know again like we talk about we're we're at the bleeding edge of some of the greatest science in the world with respect to uh, unpacking human performance and looking at the future of what humans are going to be capable of doing. But at the same time, we're spending, if not more, equally if not more time looking back and going, all right, you know, what we learned several thousand years ago actually is really, really important. And if we get into the sort of future of human and machines and that sort of human machine teaming, the reality is you, you, you're going to have to be super aware of the tech and, and, and understand the tech and understand the, the, the AI agents and the, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. But your future is probably going to be heavily dependent upon you recognizing what it means to be very human and really over developing true human skills like courage, compassion, creativity, gratitude, uh, you know, and, 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 and awareness of the environment, all those things are going to be equally, if not more important. So it's, it's a great balance. So and, you can and even one of, yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And even one of the big things is as you know, with the more social media and the more technology, we start trusting our gut less, right? Uh, I've experienced it a few times in business the last few years, making bad decisions where I had you know, everything inside me was telling me not to do something. And I did it despite it. Right. And I think that's, those are some of the, the adverse effects of social media and what we see around us and the pursuit of wanting more and actually needing less. Um, how much of your work is, is around that and helping people? Cause you spoke about that earlier, right? What do you actually want? And, and going back to that gut feel and the gut instinct, how do, what are some, I guess, tactics for people listening, just regular Joes like ourselves um, to actually help them get back to that and discover what they actually want and who they are and the self-reflection. That's a great question. I think that giving yourself nowadays, I think the first thing is giving yourself some space, <laughs> giving yourself some time. I mean, I really, I honestly, even if I, and I'm as guilty as the next person, I look at my schedule of eight Zoom meetings in a day. I'm like, what the hell? You know, I'm just back to back to back. And I like, one of the ways we look at it is first and foremost, putting yourself in a position to give yourself space to have the reflection, the time to have the reflection. What we know accelerates that is a natural environment. So go back to surfing, getting out in the water, which I think is part of the reason why many people are drawn to the ocean or the mountains. 
there actually now, funnily enough, is a science that supports the way the brain actually functions and the way the brain actually can recover is, is, is enhanced by putting yourself in a, in a very natural environment. And I, I won't get into the science of it all, but uh, the reality is that if you sort of, one, get out there, put yourself in a space where you have time, it's preferably a natural space, and then just reflect on some of those questions about what, is, what am I here? What, what, am I, what, do, what do I really want to do? What are, what, are, what, are, what, are, what are the values and things that I really truly cherish? What's important to me? Uh, what, what do I, how do I imagine myself being in five, 10 years? You know, all those sort of fundamental things I think we touch on here and there and everywhere as we go through life. But I think putting some time and energy into that first and foremost is, is a huge first step because that typically gives you a chance to sort of, sort of acknowledge where things may be lined up with that and where things may be less aligned. And again, I think COVID right now is a great opportunity. And again, notwithstanding all the horror and the, and the, and the tragedy that it's caused, but as you think looking forward, okay, I've had a chance now to reset things. And I tell a lot of people I'm talking to now, like that you have permission now probably to do things in ways you've never done before because there's sort of this global you're being everyone's got a global hall pass you know in many ways again if it, struggling for work etc cetera, etc cetera, that's that, that's the challenge in front of many people and i don't want to just diminish that at all but if you if you are in a position to sort of think about well what given this moment of time and, and this sort of sort of existential threat that's sort of around us maybe i i, I have permission to think about what i'd really put foresee for myself and my family and my friends and uh i think that's a that's a place to start totally because when else in you know the history of i, I speak to geordie a lot about this and like when else in your life geordie will you have six months and you know chad and i ourselves to our business has seen that because of covid and it's just physically impossible for us to do a lot of the projects that we had going on but when else in the history of and for the rest for the next 10 15 20 years of my work professional life will i have six eight months to just reflect on what i truly want and what we want to do and where our business is going versus just, you know, for in the whole beginning of the first year. And, and I think for a lot of people's careers, you're just chasing around, trying to keep up and staying busy and taking on more stuff where you just physically can't now. It's out of your, it truly is out of your hands now. And taking that time to truly evaluate what you want and kind of the new direction that you want to go and how that, how your personal life and emotions level up with your kind of professional life, what you're talking about in the very beginning. Yeah, and I, and I must say, numerous people and even organisations reached out. Recently, an organisation like you know, a, a lot of my staff are like even wondering why they're, what they're doing here. You know, I think it, it's 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 hitting everybody. You know, I think people are now sort of saying, "Wow, there is a there's this moment in time where you know I, I, the the normal challenges of life. You know, you know, food on the table. You know." Um, you know, trying to keep the family safe and protected, et cetera, et cetera, whatever it may be for you and your personal world, uh, being over sort of shadowed by this, as I said, this pandemic, which is sort of hidden and unknown and, and giving everyone a little taste of, uh, of their own mortality, I think. And as soon as that happens, people start to think a little bit again. And I don't know if it'll pass. I don't know if it's just, you know, uh, you know, you know, humans are, tragically go back to the norm pretty quickly after events either good or bad 
Um, and I think maybe, but maybe taking a moment to pause right now and, and thinking, well, if I could really do over, what would I do? Uh, and not to unravel and pack up everything and disappear off into the hills, but I think there's, there's it's, a, it's, a, it's a great time to sort of at least make some of the, 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 the sort of uh, the COVID experience uh, supportive for yourself versus just a challenge to be overcome. And what do you tell your staff that are struggling with it? We're naturally in a great environment because of the community around us, but I th- we still talk a lot about what each person's doing. And it, pretty much every meeting we have starts with a, how's everyone going? Just go around the hall. What are you working on? What's happening? How's the family? And, you know, everybody, it's sort of very much we're keeping tabs on each other. And I think community is, rather than telling our staff or being, our, our staff has naturally defaulted this idea that the community is stronger than the individual and, and the team. And so how do we keep, awareness up amongst the team of how everybody's doing and that's naturally helping everybody get through it and uh, personally for me it's making a huge difference so but, yeah that's just you know trying to try and walk the walk a little with us i was going to make you give me a, a stratos story but i feel like we might run out of time because stratos is a big project but if uh for those that don't know uh felix baumgartner basically jumped out of the uh what from the stratosphere which is how many miles up the in the air? Uh, 127, 128,000 feet. So uh, I'm, I'm a metric guy, so you have to do the math in terms. Of, I think, is that yeah. like 30, 30 miles? Uh, yeah, I'm a metric dude too, but let me pull it up quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what the precise, the precise uh, height was really fucking high. <laughs> that, that's the precision way to speak about it. G- give me just one anecdote. 24.2 miles. Okay. Up. <laughs> okay, so I was I was exaggerating. So it was twenty twenty. Used to be a marathon. Mar- yeah, a marathon, yeah. Huh? yeah I, I like the long fucking way up. That's that's far more appropriate. <laughs> yeah. uh, one anecdote from that, I think oh, there's so many great stories. Again, a, a, an amazing team of people gathered together. To, obviously, and Felix in his own way, uh, breaking through all sorts of highs and lows to get to that. But I think one of the one of the fun parts for me was this. Again, it's sort of funny. It's a theme that's cropped up a few times. Is because Stratos was done by a brand, and 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 and, and Red Bull, you know, in its, I think it's 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 it's, it's what we call maybe rational ignorance. Yeah, let's throw someone out of space, and then you sit around and actually think about how you're going to do this, and it's like, whoa, there's a lot more going on here, you know. And and, and again, I'm I'm being fairly blasé, but the the idea that the way we had to pull it off is in the early days before I was involved, Red Bull. Had the had the brilliance of actually getting, uh, you know, the the old guard. You know, they they obviously you couldn't go down to NASA and hire their top talent. It's way too expensive and JPL, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, under the sort of leadership of Art Thompson, you he, he sort of gathered this crew of scientists who were, you know, you know, seventies plus, you know, at, at, at the youngest and uh, aerospace engineers, ex-test pilots, blah 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 blah. Kind of the right stuff, but you imagine with a 50 years plus on kind of group. And, you know, as you sat and talked to these individuals and you heard their backgrounds and you recognise that they'd actually come up through, in many cases, part of the Mercury and Apollo programs. They were involved in aerospace indirectly or directly through that time. And then you'd, you'd sit down and you'd sort of get them talking about that era. And I was always fascinated as to the space program itself, the U.S. space program. It always blew me away how 
staggeringly innovative and, and, and the leaps in technology and engineering that were made during that time. I was like, what, what was it about that moment? Yeah, I know even the vision of the boss at Kennedy at the time to put it out there the way he did. But I want to get the sort of backstory. So we go down to this bar and um, we'd sit down in this, this old bar in Roswell, New Mexico. And, and, and these boys love margaritas, which go figure, because they'd spent over the years cumulatively tons and tons of time down at Area 51 which is just next door to Roswell, because that's one of the test bases that some of the secret stuff they'd all worked on, they were hosted. And so, you know, funnily enough, these guys are pounding these margaritas. I'm like, whoa, we're, you know, we're, we're moving quick here. And um, they, I'd started, then I'd start to try and pick their brains, and they still were completely true to their classified backgrounds. They would not give up much, but the stuff they could give away. Anyway, of many of the great stories they would tell, what, what really blew me away was just the sort of cowboy nature of that time. They were talking about how they were testing these jets for the first time, like really pushing them out there. And they went, yeah, yeah, it's calling pilot Bobby or something. You know, he was up there and they're on the runway and they've got the whole fleet out. You know, they've got the flag officers, they've got the Congress people out watching and then the guy's sitting on the, on the runway and this plane is not going anywhere. And they're like, what the, and they're trying to get on the radio and they're, you know, they're like, da, 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 da. And, and he said when we were panicking because the congressman funding, all that sort of stuff was sort of up in the air, but these individuals were sort of, you know, getting nervous in terms of this is a waste of US taxpayer money, blah, blah, you know, the story. And, and it turns out what was going on was Art was saying, well, he was so drunk that he was sitting there and he had to suck pure oxygen out of the onboard oxygen system for about 30, 40 <laughs> minutes to actually sober up enough to actually fly the plane, which again is an experimental plane that has never been flown before. Oh my and, God. And I was sitting there and I was thinking, you know what? And he said, and then we let these missiles off the chain and we had this old convertible without a roof and we would drive it through the desert chasing this missile, trying to figure out where the thing was going. And, and again, I, at that certain point, I'm like, are they making this up? Are they still, but the funny part was it it just gave me a huge respect for the, the, both their inherent genius of what they were doing, but this idea that they were pushing so hard. They were challenging every conventional wisdom. They were backing themselves. They were putting themselves in harm's way, but they were doing it with kind of a smile on their face. And I was like, that's the culture you want. Now, you could not do it. You, you, you know, there's no chance in hell you could replicate that now with those sorts of resources. I mean, the, the checks and balances are just no way but i i just then i re, it dawned on me that i'd seen all these extraordinary stories of space and sort of the, the neil armstrong getting to the moon and i i recognized that there must have been these dozens and dozens and dozens of teams of just people like this just in their own way pushing the edge challenging what anyone thought was possible probably a little pirate in nature, little, <laughs> little on the edge. And, uh, and, and I really thought, you know, I, I felt at that moment to be super privileged to be sitting there and just listening to this. And, and then the stories just went on and on and on. I was, you know, it's, it, it was a great time. But crazy people, you know, crazy, crazy innovation has to come from crazy people. Like you don't get one without the other, right? You, these people, you know, the best athletes and the best business people and best minds, they most extreme they're extremists essentially i mean i think elon musk is a prime example of that yeah i think there's there's something to it but just the way you can see in their eyes that they 
as they relive these moments is it, 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 it just that how do you get an element of that sort of sort of cowboy nature into the system so that and how do you create an environment as, as a modern day sort of organization who's trying to not be disrupted who's, tr who's trying to outthink the competition how do you create those environments that give permission to the right people with the right ideas the the, the place to go and explore and not fundamentally play but play with purpose i guess and and i think that's really a, a key to sort of sort of success nowadays because the world's moving so quickly you can't predict the future you can't try and keep up you've got to actually get in there and be part of it what are you most proud of andy professionally and personally out of all these communities this sort of unique collection of individuals who are just passionate about sort of human performance and passionate more even more deeply about supporting others to reach their goals i think i wouldn't say i'm i'm proud of it i'm i'm actually humbled by being part of it but proud that i'm in that community you know and i think that really is um really something that as, as, as we think we're trying to figure out how to unleash that potential in, in that group we're trying to actually how do we recreate more moments that really inspire and get people excited about this space or how do we even share a lot of what we've learned with that next generation how do we accelerate all that and let people just sort of stand on the shoulders of these great individuals and then step way up and beyond so i think that's uh, that's something that we're we're both excited by but we're also challenged by right now to figure out the right way to do that and and just last one chad had a great question here about kind of that like that aha moment and waking up at 3 a.m and like do you go and write it down or what what is that kind of the greatest aha moment you've had in you know all your like works and studies of you know the human body and, and mind whoa the greatest aha moment and how did you get ah. there because you know i think there's a great book by jonah lear it's called think and it's about how we kind of get to that moment and you know for for writers and novelists, it's about you know, a deadline. So something happens in the human brain when, when you've got a deadline approaching and you've got your back against the wall and you actually end up performing at a higher level. There's all these different things, right? I think we've seen that with the resilience in, in the human species. Um, what has that been for you? Um, it's funny. Uh, sometimes, de sometimes deadlines work, you know, to, to sort of pivot off what you're saying. is, But for me, I think the greatest aha moments come when I get away from everything, when I actually can cut away and either get in the water, get up on the mountain, go for a ride on the bike and the, on the trails or something. For me then, I typically find the first half hour, 90, 45 minutes, I'm, going, I'm kind of thinking about everything, and then you let go and then, oh, wow, oh, yeah, and to me, that's for me. What we've noticed over the years, and we actually did some research on it as part of the Hacking Creativity Project, was that, that sometimes it's different for everyone. Some people like the dynamicism of a group and get all their ideas in that sort of more uh, extroverted way. Others like to remove themselves. So for me, that's been that sort of classical thing is, you know, the, the, the idea comes to you in the shower. Well, you know, for me, it's been out in nature usually is the one that triggers it. You know, a, a lot of the aha moments are... <laughs> Uh, more of a reminder that you really don't know anything. Andy, you better pull your head in and listen again because you thought you knew this, but <laughs> you're, you know, probably you're barking up the wrong tree. So that's sort of a repetitive aha moment that I get a lot. It's sort of like just the sheer nature of the talent we work with. It's like just never assume anything except that everybody has something to offer and watch and listen and learn. But I think in terms of changing my philosophy a little 
I think two moments of, in, in sort of the in the rebel period because I think that they're, they're two to, that are fun to reflect on. One was just that what we spoke to before the notion that all this talent, whether it was in the dance, in the in the film, in the artistry, in the in the surf, in the snow, the skate, all those action sports, the, the talent performing in the most challenging and and, and life threatening spaces at the top of the game in terms of all the performance elements you care to name and really had never had any formal training or background. The idea that the environment could be crafted to be, uh, to provide everything you needed to learn from was a huge awakening for me. Uh, uh, and I think then when we started to dig deeper into sort of, sort of the, the Campbell rites of passage narratives and we sat with uh, one of the traditional owners in the Kimberley when we did the Akron project where we immersed, uh, uh, the, the, the ladies, three rebel athletes, uh, into the dropped them literally airdropped them into the middle of the Kimberley in, in northwestern Australia. They had to sort of maneuver on their own throughout, you know, through that that environment in, in a really tough way. We smoked in and smoked out as part of the sort of a, uh, the, the sort of ceremony of respecting the the owners there and the the traditional owner there, the Aboriginal woman. She sat down. She. She said, "Ah, oh, we asked her if she'd shoot something for the start of the for the start of the show that they were making about it." And uh, you can actually see it; it's somewhere on one of the you know, YouTube or somewhere channels. But to sort of paraphrase it, she basically said, "You know, you you take your you take your youth, you drop them out there, you put them in this situation where it's completely challenging, unknown." and you, you, you show them who they are. You teach them what it's all about, but you show them who they are. And she said it off the cuff like it was just, you know, something she would be passing along in the supermarket. And I reflected at that moment that we'd spent 20 odd years in the performance business trying to get to that moment, which is something that they'd had in their history for 50, 60,000 years of culture. And that aha moment again was that, oh my God, just remember that, no matter what you're thinking of and how you've, how, how, how far you think you've come along in your own career, that somewhere, somehow, somebody else has done this at a much higher level and thought more deeply about this than you have. And so take time to go and look and see if you can learn from them before trying to imagine that it's something you invented. So that's sort of a, another big moment for me. That's awesome. Thank you. And uh, I guess finally, just to round out it, where can people that want to know more about you and what you do and your business find you? Liminalcollective.co. Very cool. Your, your guys' business sounds like when you're describing what you guys do, like something you'd see in a movie where you have to have like, you have to have the special number that you text to like get in, in, in touch with the person and then you like unlock this kind of new point <laughs> of stuff I, that you've been searching I, for. I, it's I, not I, just I, like I, readily I, available. I'll take the, the sort of secret agent sort of approach you to throw out there. It sounds way cooler than a bumbling pack yeah. of old, old crew trying to figure it out. You try, <laughs> and, and I would always use this one. You guys are trying to, uh, you're trying to help people connect with themselves and kind of go, go inside. You don't need to be promoting more, you know, more noise on social media. So it's kind of par for the course. I think <laughs> the only way to get in touch with them is you have to meet on a park bench in Stad. Uh, in front of the cafe and you'll get like a secret code that you have to then decipher if you're smart enough to decipher the code they might take a meeting 
That's well, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Keep spinning that story. Keep spinning that story. Because... Oh, it's like all the testers, they throw the brick at the wall. You have to stand on the wall and look dark. That's, that's probably more appropriate. Throw the brick at us. Yeah, that's right. I, I love that very cool version of uh, a very polite way of saying zero social media uh, uh, presence. You know, it's, it's far cooler to say it like you said. Chan. Yeah, that's the way, way you need to say it. You, you, you got it. It's all about spin. We're marketers over here, man. We, we know how to spin stuff. This is what we do. Uh, so, too cool. All right. Well, Andy, great talking to you, man. Let's have dinner with the fam. We're, we're super close now, so uh, you don't have to come all the way down to Venice. You guys got to come over and I got to see your little grown-up girls. They got to be – how old are they now? Nine. Twin, nine, twin, twin, nine-year-olds. Crazy. Well, hey, Mason's, Mason's twenty-one and six-five, so I, I, uh, yeah, that that is terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> that, uh, he's as big as Duma, maybe bigger. And I'm oh a month God. away from having a girl, Andy, and Jordy's uh, uh, two months away from having a little boy, actually. Oh no, that's so sweet. Well, you're about to step into a whole new world, so yeah, yeah, mate. Congratulations. <laughs> Try to find well, myself yeah. before she comes. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Hopefully there's something in there that's useful to your crew and, and the people listening. Yeah, Andy, I think you're, and I, and I think we all make this mistake a lot. Uh, we're so close to it and we're so wrapped up in it that it's that stuff that isn't very interesting to you anymore is fascinating to us and other people that aren't in, aren't in your world, you know, and aren't in your space. So everything you say there is just, you know, so new to me and I think our listeners, so I think people will really love it. Love the spin. Dave. You should be out <laughs> here. I love the spin. <laughs> <laughs> hey cool guys we'll take care and um yeah and let us know when it goes up because we can for our 50 people that do follow us on instagram we might be able to put it up there and just just and engage 50 100 <laughs> engagement rate <laughs> <laughs> and amy and the little one mate all the very best i know it's going to be a great ride for you oh thank you so much i really appreciate that andy looking Cheers, forward mate. to seeing you in the flesh you too brother bye mate all right, Cheers. That right there is our next product review. The sounds from recording the leash breaking of the next product review. This might be, you know, so this is a really challenging one for me. For I hate leashes anyway. Yeah. Like I don't like wearing leashes. But if I did wear a leash and it broke, this this would be the last thing I would ever think about totally. buying. So when we posted the one, uh, the first one that we did with the cup for Surf Wax, um, the guys from Green Room Times, which is that funny satire. Um, Instagram uh, page they sent me like this product and it's called surf rescue and their website is surf s-u-r-f-r-e-s-q.com.au do you and think I, there's a QAnon thing there do you think they have uh, a, no yeah look too much into it all right maybe I think uh, <laughs> and just judging by the design of it feels like maybe there's very yeah the, the Q hat. is very <laughs> you know what I mean yeah, yeah see uh, so they sent it to me and we just started giggling about the product and it was one of those products that I'm just like, who makes this shit? Like, who funded this? Like, making stuff isn't cheap. It no. requires a lot of time. Just getting sent to market is, it's a big job. And then to build a website and shoot content and everything around it. And I was like, who funded this? This is so stupid. But I, so I naturally ordered it straight away. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it took about three weeks to come in. I think it was like 10 or 15 bucks plus like 15 bucks shipping. But the idea of what it is, is and they're kind of 
their sales pitch or their elevator pitch is fix a snap leash in seconds, right? So the idea is that you break your leash, you've got this little surf rescue device that almost looks like a bobber from like a sinker that yeah. holds it up and it's orange. It looks like a bit of a fishing lure. Yeah. And you just stick your leash in there and it's fixed. And it's like, there's no way in a million years this works. And I was blown away. It works. It's unbelievable. So, Does it? Because I, I don't think, you know, that's funny. I don't think we ever even discussed it. You, no, you, no, I didn't. So yeah. the other day I was like, okay, let me just go test this product. So I, that sound that you heard is me. I had a, I had the leash, a leash tied to um, a sign outside my house, a no parking sign, and then to the back of my car. And I was stretching it. And I'll post a video when we post this live. And you just hear the leash snap and it whoops back at the car and the sign. Anyway, so now I had that. And the idea is that it's, it's so it does, it looks just like a bobber, a bobber, I think that's what it is. Yeah, it's a bobber. That yeah. holds it up and it's orange. And the idea is that you put both sides of the leash in and then it's got these like clamps, almost like a, like a Chinese finger trap, right? Yeah, like exactly. The more you pull, the tighter it gets, right? And you push it in and then it clips. And once it's in, it is like unbreakable. I, my sister and I were pulling it. We tested. I tested this weekend in some proper waves again. Like I use it to panga small, but then I tested it at Silver Strand because I just literally didn't have a leash and it was the only one in my car. Oh my gosh! So the idea is that it goes on the back of your leash. So you, so you're probably thinking like, okay, well, why do, why don't, why would I just not go to the car and get another leash? So this is so you don't have to go to the car or the boat trip or wherever you are to get another leash, right? So it goes on the back of your rail saver. Just attaches to it. Super easy. Kind of like won't get in the way it's just behind your grip and that's where it holds it so when you break your leashes i you get your board back and then just pull it out and just clip it in and once it's in there's no coming out and it's got like these teeth in there that hold it and it's just like it's so sturdy and so strong it's probably like becomes the strongest point on the leash right there's probably oh, for a sure. higher chance it breaks on either side of that again. well that was what i wanted to know is that so when you pulled it tight again did it break no i mean i used it at like three foot because i forgot a leash and it was i basically had like this like mavericks leash or this comp leash yeah um in my car with this huge bobber on yeah so i used it and it works like look there's definitely some drag there's <laughs> a fair bit of drag <laughs> but if you're an indo somewhere and you're like desperate and you don't want to get out of the water yeah why not and you know new leash is 50 bucks you could use this probably until it breaks again problem is so the one downside is you only get one use out of it right because once those teeth are it's done yeah and maybe you could What's the you, cost of it? It's here. Let's go. I'm on the website right now. It's it's fifteen ninety five Australian. So like ten twelve bucks US. And they've got two colors. I ordered the orange. They've got a blue too. They should probably just do like a how black. much? Are, how much are leashes? They're like forty bucks. Okay. Thirty five. Thirty to forty bucks. So if you were, uh, I'm just gonna say if if this product is perfect. If you're someone that doesn't care about wearing a leash. Or doesn't care about leash drag because because I, I think that's the thing. Like I think the thing that's I like I don't mind the little spaghetti leashes, you know, like the little comp leashes. But when you start wearing the big thicker leashes, like I, and maybe it's just totally no, in my no, brain. You can definitely feel like, like I you could, really can feel that. I drag. could feel it dragging behind me when I was paddling. It felt like I had a bit of seaweed or something on my leash, not like a huge amount because they do have quite a clever design. It obviously like skips on the water. Right. Um, I was waiting for it kind of while I was serving to like skip back. You know, like I guess being like hit me in the leg. Or oh something. yeah, but it didn't. Uh, but I had like some good wipeouts in it. It works, man. So so it's a so it's a thumbs up. This is is, it, is it a ten out of ten would 10, recommend? Ten out of ten would recommend. This is my new favorite surf product. Like uh, I, I would never in a million use this. I would rather my board hit the reef, and I'd rather spend forty five minutes going to get a new leash because that's their the commercial on their website is like a, one guy in the water with with surf rescue the other guy doesn't other guy's got to go all the way back to his place where he's staying and get a new leash and it right. takes him 45 minutes so it takes the other guy like 
30 seconds uh which if that's if that's of value was, the, to you, was the guy with the surf rescue one like better looking than the other guy too? he was, was like yeah he, he was, was he had right? a nice six pack the other guy yeah, was a yeah the other guy a little chubby yeah, <laughs> yeah he just so he just didn't have his that. shit together no. yeah uh, but they've got this like funny ad of this guy sitting in the lineup what looks like indo like with a broken leash and he's like devastated and you know, his session's over and then you get surf rescue and he's back and he's, he's back, back eating chewed it's cool like yeah, yeah hey yeah. i mean you know i i'm glad that you're stoked on it and and i i like look i'm i'm a bit shocked i kind of i didn't even know because we didn't talk about it i kind of thought you were just going to be like this is the lamest thing oh that's how it was that's when i ordered it i had that like i had that opinion before i even got it like this is lame and it's you know i've I just judged it. So you're saying don't judge a book by its cover. 100%. Right? Like, Give the, everything a chance. And the bad, and now that like I've used it and it works, I kind of like the bad branding and all that more. Like it's just so obvious what it is. Yeah. And, it, and they got like on the packaging, it shows like a leash almost going in on either side. And it's it says uh, separation, because separation can be hard. And they spelled because C-O-Z, which is unfortunate. But uh, temporary uh, yeah. leash repair mechanism. And I wouldn't even say it's temporary. It's like, that leash is fixed till it's broken again. Yeah, <laughs> like it's actually just a leash repair. Well, mechanism. I think we, I think we need to, we need to, once we're done with this podcast, go outside and, and and see if we can see see where that leash breaks when we we try to do the yeah, test again. Yeah, again, the only problem is is like the next time it pulls, uh, if that thing, if the oh god, it goes it'll, a it'll, way, it'll either smash the window, of my it'll car smash the or, window or hurt yeah. somebody. <laughs> yeah, okay, so let's so. not do that. Good, good thinking. All right, well, you, Surf Rescue, Surf Rescue, ten out of ten would recommend. You guys get the that's the first. Th- no, the last one actually was pretty good too. No, right, the wax cup sucked. No, 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 not the last. No, we, because before then we had the uh, the Buddha, uh, Buddha bag. Or the Buddha whatever. Bailey was awesome. Well, the Buddha shower. I've been using it to water my garden. Yeah, uh, so that's what there it you is. Go. It's basically now like an eighty dollar water garden water. That's right. <laughs> it's terrible, but it's, it's good. good. It's perfect. Like it's got the perfect water pressure for the garden, so I don't damage the. Maybe I should get Maria one. She'd be yeah. stoked on it. Yeah, you know, she can just have my one. We'll repackage it. All right, cool. Yeah. Uh, but if you have got any other products that you think are funny or ridiculous, send them over, and we'll test them. So you don't have to. Do we? Uh, I mean, that I, I, I'm even now going to try to find something that's as, that's as ridiculous, if not more, just from on my own. But yeah. we definitely like it when the when listeners find them for us. So thank you so much. I think that's that's about all we got for episode 22 of Surf Center. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. It was a little different to Michael's one. It was going to be always be hard to live up to uh, Oblovich and his storytelling around uh, the Sea of Darkness, but I, that's good. I enjoyed. I really enjoyed our conversation with Andy. Yeah, I'm just kind of bummed that Andy didn't come with his own soundtrack. I mean, I think we got to, yeah. you know, he's a really smart dude. He's got a PhD or two and, and you know, all that, but... Really, at the end of the day, like you're really nothing now if you if you can't, you know, the world expects you to be able to play your guitar, sing your own intro, and and have stories about you know moving mass amounts of drugs. Yeah, if the, if that's what you have to do to be on a podcast, we might be out. We might have to cancel our podcast. That's it. Yeah, I guess the bar set. Like, we yeah. just set the bar a little too high. No, anyway, Andy was awesome, and so is Mikey, and everybody that comes on here has a, a, a something different that they add, which is what makes it so fun for us. So, hope you guys enjoyed it, and we'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is produced by Free Radicals, an agency founded by Chad White and Damian Farrenfort, who operate under the belief that traditional advertising is dead. 
Chad and Damien believe brands should focus on improving the lives of consumers, and they help you do this by uncovering insights and developing ideas. For more info about what they do and the work they've done, check out their website at www.freeradicals.tv. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.